0: gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And today you are in for a treat. That's right. We are putting out three episodes this week. This is a bonus interview conversation that's hot off the heels from our last episode with Tom the Headhunter Higgins. That's right. My guest, my friend, uh, fellow New Englander, Andrew Rouse, host of the Deep Share podcast, joined me for a conversation. And it was As I said, hot off the heels of this Tom Higgins conversation, and I was already, my mind was in that realm, and sure enough, so was Andrews. So I figured, why not put this out as a bonus episode for everybody uh, who's listening to the show, who maybe hasn't supported the show yet, but, uh, you know, I'm doing ads now, so I figured, why not give everybody a treat? Uh, You guys are the number one podcast audience in the world according to me, and this podcast is amazing because of all of you. And yeah, I don't know you, but guess what? I know that you are amazing just purely because you are listening to this podcast. So thanks for being here. If you love the show, if this is your favorite podcast, leave us a five-star rating and review. Send me a one-time donation at Mystic Mark on Venmo, PayPal, or cash symbol Mark Steves Jr. on Cash App. And that'll really help me uh, continue to put out three episodes a week if you catch my drift, hint, hint. So if you want to see three episodes a week, uh, just keep on supporting the show. This episode is its entirety. There is no uh, extended edition. This episode was recorded pretty late. So by the hour and 30 mark, I was a little tired and uh, we wrapped the conversation up so I, I couldn't. I couldn't chop this episode into, uh, into parts and put half of it out for the uh, supporters only. So there you go. A little gift, a bonus episode for everybody who listens and enjoys the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thanks for being here. Support my friend Andy. His podcast, The Deep Share, goes deep. And I'm not just saying that because he's my guest. Uh, his show covers many of the same topics that we do. So I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Go and support Andy. But first, enjoy this conversation here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast with Andrew Rouse from the Deep Share podcast. Right, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And with me today is a good friend who I've been podcasting with since nearly the beginning of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And I know he had been doing his podcast for some time before I started and he reignited the flame. And we all have been podcasting together in the broader Alt Media United community. My man Andy Rouse from the Deep Share podcast is back again. And today we're going to be talking about some strange, interesting stuff. We're going to be getting into the Tuatha De Danin and more, which is awesome because this episode should be coming out maybe one or two episodes after my conversation with Tom Higgins, where we touched on it briefly, as I mentioned to you earlier. But before we get into that, tell the audience a little bit about why you started going down this avenue and as you put it rehumanizing antiquity maybe tell us a little bit about what that means to you and and folks you know if you haven't heard Andy before of course subscribe to the deep share podcast he's been on the show before he's told us this spiel plenty of times so let's just get right into it what does rehumanizing antiquity mean to you
1: well first of all thanks for having me back man it's been too long Appreciate it. It's good to talk to you.
0: Agreed. Good to see you. Likewise.
1: Uh, Rehumanizing history is, yeah, it's just a little saying I've kind of come up with. And it's this this kind of quest I've been on over the past year and a half or so. You know, as you know, I I was on here before with Dananaki Dan talking about Box Saga long ago. And the thing is, it's like looking back, I know a lot more now than I did back then. You know what I mean? I was just flabbergasted by the saga back then, but now it's just good to to kind of have as like a keystone and, and use as like a hypothetical point in history or whatever to branch out and see other areas. Because what really inspired me more than anything, more than the collective of me, Dan and Yoke kind of doing our thing, personally, it was my lifelong fascination with aliens and UFOs and the weird and wild world that got me into alternative thinking in general with psychedelics and stuff like that back in the day. So my interest in it was how there was aspects of the saga that I personally felt like I couldn't deny, at least at the understanding level that I was at with it. And a lot of it aligned with reframing a lot of our language and our words that we use today and the concepts that we have today Uh, and that led me to understand that we can have a human story that starts with humans and continues with humans and doesn't have to have a what would you say alien or metaphysical intervention that we have for a lot of people we take it as gospel this ancient alien hypothesis or on the other side of it, more of a religious view. And both of these views I've explored endlessly throughout my personal journey. And the saga kind of put me on a new path where we can look at a lot of this as more of a human story than we ever have before. And honestly, when you think about it, a lot of our alternative thinking, no matter what what direction we go, our central point for a, a lot of us is usually that They're trying to take our power or something or someone is obfuscating the personal power of of humanity and each each and every individual, you know, and this really hit home with me. I was like, well, generally speaking, shit, all of this stuff is kind of doing that exact thing. And uh, yeah, so I started getting into myth and folklore and started to just, I basically put the cart before the horse, this, you know, something they tell you never to do and just hypothetically was like okay maybe I can see if this lines up with other parts of like if I look at other myths and see if it all lines up with the symbolism maybe I'll put something together and so far I've found some interesting things.
0: Yeah as you put in the notes here we're sort of orphaned because of this history erasure and you, know, you mentioned aliens being a fascination of yours. I agree. It's kind of funny. My fascination with megaliths kind of came through my fascination with aliens because I heard this, you know, obviously everybody's probably seen it at some point in time, ancient aliens. And I was there for the aliens. I stayed for the ancient. And I, you know, kept digging into the ancient stuff. And, you know, it's been a consistent theme on this show and I just, I mentioned my interview with Tom. I have also had an interview yesterday with Chaz of the Dead, who you're familiar with. And he has, at least lately, come to the conclusion or is exploring the hypothesis that there's a more human explanation behind things like UFOs, Sasquatch, and et cetera. So in the same way, I wonder, you know, are we embarking down that same path? Like, is that kind of what you mean by rehumanizing history or rehumanizing antiquity? Because, I mean, from a certain context, yeah, I guess ancient aliens (laughs) puts a sci-fi tinge on it all. I mean, religion puts a certain tinge on it all. And then history, I mean, historians have a political tinge on everything, right? And then even worse, sometimes they have a, a bias that makes them... A race history, as you you put it. So, yeah, like, where do you kind of approach this? Are you going along the same lines as Chaz in that sense? Uh, yeah, I would say. Well, shout
1: out to Chaz; he's awesome, and, and we've spoken many times, and we agree on a lot of this stuff. And every time I have kind of gone off on rants with him about you know this human perspective rather than gods or aliens. It's uh, it definitely resonates for sure. We have we've had conversations about it in the past. Um, yeah, I, you know I was fascinated by Zachariah Sitchin and stuff like that. He was my go-to for a long time, and books like his series were very inspiring. And
2: man, I don't
1: know. It's it, you start to go through the motions of like who's who and who pays who, and you know where these narratives are coming from. Not to mention now we have the you know, the official disclosure kind of slowly happening with the military and the governments involved in all this and wheeling out fake bodies and stuff like that. It's a circus. And slowly but surely, they are including the ancient alien twinge. And the thing is, like you said, you know, ancient aliens put that little twinge on it, but it was just a History Channel show, right? It's just BlackRock-owned History Channel pushing aliens in our ancient past, you know, making a total mockery of even accepted history, right? Like even the boomers that just take history as it's written, ancient aliens is ridiculous to them. You know what I mean? But at the same time, so is what I'm saying, because the ancients were just primitive weirdos. That's all they were to most of older people. So it's like the perspective we're coming at is pretty novel, I guess you could say, even though it really isn't and it shouldn't be. It's been a long time since this has been a discussion worth having because I feel like our culture has been so beaten to death over centuries with the world is mundane, the world is your five senses, and it is what it is. You know, is. We've gone away from religious myth for the most part, You know, for the majority, and gone towards secular thinking and scientific thinking and very reductionist thinking. So we've grown up in that mundane world, and then suddenly a good portion of our population has the opportunity to have our head turned and have a wild experience with whatever that makes us kind of think things aren't as they seem, things aren't as I was told. But unfortunately, that actually puts most people into one of the most vulnerable positions they've ever been in, because now the doors are wide open for all the snake oil.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well... That's the funny thing is it it comes in many different forms. I was listening to a great podcast, Mysterious Universe Today, break down a book about this woman who basically fooled a whole abbey, like where monks would, I think it was the Franciscan monks. She fooled them all into thinking that they were, you know, she was the like, like, holy basically like a virgin mary and that she was gonna give birth to you know the next uh, you know jesus right or the holy spirit and what was weird is she was like because she basically made herself a living saint you know through her powers in the church so then she was selling her own body parts not really selling like people would donate to the church and take her like skin and, like, they made the joke, like, oh, it sounds like e-girls selling their bathwater online, you know? And, yeah. and there is this kind of weird, creepy aspect to it. But, yeah, it, I got off on a tangent there. But, uh, yeah, no, it, it, it seems like, you know, religion has that capacity. Now, I notice in the notes you've used some etymology and I never really even made this connection until I saw it. I mean, it's in my face. It's kind of funny. Like, I'm really glad you pointed this out, but you put fairies, the Greek word fair, terms related to uh, a great house, and it's also the stem of the word pharaoh. And I stopped for a moment. I'm like, pharaohs, fairies. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. like they are kind of similar there. But
1: there's They couldn't be further apart when you think of the imagery and the and well, yeah, absolutely tales, you
0: know? but that when you consider that you know there's this whole idea that the egyptians came from somewhere else before they settled on the nile river valley and there's possibly evidence that they traveled through ireland right this whole story so and I, I
1: believe they'd mentioned atlantis on a giant wall in egypt too you know by the way Awesome presentation that you did a few while back on tinfoil hat (laughs) on Atlantis and everything. That was excellent. That was really good material, man.
0: Yeah, thank you. Well, I mean, shout out to Michael Leflem for putting such a great book together. It's really all his research. And, you know, I just kind of made it simple for everyone on tinfoil hat. But yeah, yeah, no, when we look at these similarities, you know, with etymology, really, it's like become a huge tool, I think, in a lot of our toolkits. I notice it in Instagram posts. I notice even whole podcasts where people talk about the similarity of words, you know? So etymology is definitely something that I think we, we should use to take notice. And that's a big part of the Bach saga as well, like this whole, you know, connection between language. So have you looked into that? And, you know, what have you found with the these etymological connections and the Gaelic Words mm, well, and obviously Tuatha Dé Danann is a, what a Gaelic term, right? That would be from yes. the Gaelic language.
1: That's right. And uh, yeah, mentioning the Box Saga there, it was definitely the Box Saga that turned me on to etymology in general. Like I had thought it was very interesting what people were saying over the years. You know, we've all people have been diving into it way deeper than I I ever have. But it really struck me when I started getting into the saga because it was all these like modern words. And I'm like, well, you're telling me this, these modern words are part of like this ancient thing. And going through the whole process of understanding how they consider like English to be kind of this miracle language that came out of the birth of the root language and Vaughn language is just, it's mind blowing stuff. And that's really where I got into it. And yeah, I found all these these translations were legit. It seemed like I I checked multiple sources online and I was like, okay, this is me putting the cart before the horse. Like, can I find evidence that maybe these were humans instead of whatever? So I started with the Anunnaki because that was my fascination. That was the heart of it, man. Zachariah Sitchin, they were all coming from Nibiru and that was coming back someday. We all need to be afraid. And um, when I started looking into them, Beyond just the strict alien material, there's anthropological records that go way back. And I started looking into authors that did research on it. I got into a man named Sir Lawrence Gardner, and uh, I've gotten so embedded in his work that I've I've even reached out to his, his widow. And we've exchanged emails, and she's told me about his life and different things. This man was pretty fascinating. And for a time, he was in charge of, well, 33 royal families, family trees and putting them together and what he started to find was this unreal connection to all these different bloodlines well this main bloodline and uh, he became acquainted with a man named nicholas devere and many people out there might be familiar with a book called the dragon legacy and it's where a lot of this information comes from nicholas devere was a a man who grew up in, in Europe and his family was part of a royal house. And he started looking into his lineage and eventually got embedded in esoteric circles that were connected to his family. And it's crazy when you look up this Drakenberg House of the Dragon that they are a part of, and they claim to go all the way back to the Anunnaki, and they can find it in their family archives. And that's what Lawrence Gardner had access to and all that. Yeah, it's pretty impressive what you find. And he was also blown away. And he did you know, all kinds of research into yeah his own family archives. And he's not the only one. I'm sure you've heard of a book called Holy Blood, Holy Grail, this is, I ended up in Grail quest territory and I had no intention of landing there whatsoever. And I found it really interesting. And I, Lawrence Gardner talks about the ring and the rod being the two main symbols of the Grail lore, which is, you know, right away I'm thinking, Oh, rings and poles like the box saga. Very interesting. And of course this whole, this led me into all these words explaining how, fairies and all this language was connected somehow to the Anunnaki. And it was first with uh, a man named Freddie Silva, an author who's been all over the world. He talks to, you know, the native peoples of all cultures. And he explored this too and found that the Anunnaki had a connection to the Tuada de Danan because the Tuada, their original name in Armenian was Tuada de Anu, and so there's no mistaking Anu is the sky god of the Anunnaki. And we start to look at all these places where they start popping up. It's all over the Middle East and everything. But we have these tales of the fairies, the Tuatha De Danan, coming to Ireland in clouds of black smoke. Well, it was. This tradition of these sea people, and we've heard this sea people term many times, to burn their ships when they became, when they got to shores, to the shores of their enemies, because there was no option for retreat. That was where they were staying. And so it's fascinating to find these traditions in Viking history and Scandinavia and things like that, and then finding it in Irish history, and then learning how a lot of Irish culture comes from you know, the Viking migrations into Ireland. So it's just all crazy how connected it is, man.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. So you go from Sitchin through the Bach saga. I mean, we're taking it and connecting it all around the globe. So the Phoenicians, the Celts, the Scandinavians, all groups that allegedly came to America before Columbus, and that's a big interest of mine, And obviously Atlantis would have been probably closer to America than the old world, maybe even in America, given what is here. But are we suggesting that these are beings from that pre-Diluvian time? That's why they were called sky gods, because they had some sort of mastery over, you know, skycraft that would maybe help them evade the flood you know maybe Mm. not airplanes as we would think of them now but maybe something more similar to like a hot air balloon i mean there is evidence of ancient peoples using elephant skins to you know create these what seem to be hot air balloons so could that be a part of this? I'm just kind of reaching for... <laughs> Dude,
1: that could totally be plausible. I've never even heard that. That sounds pretty cool. I never really look into the possibility of like the technology itself because that word is so... Uh, we, we use it in such a particular way because of the times that we're in and the way that we've used technology and the way we think of it, you know? Mm. But... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, you threw me off a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. it is really fascinating. Um, I lost it. What was the first part of the question?
0: Well, let's get back to Anu because you mentioned yeah, sure. that Anu is an indication the that, uh, that's that right. they're connected to the Anunnaki, right?
1: Yes. And the sky god thing. Yeah. I personally, I'm starting to think that means more, it's like the people that knew how to navigate the skies knew how to, they understood the stars, like we often hear star people, right? I would say this is people that understood the stars, astrologically, astronomically, the same architects that we always end up talking about, Egypt and Mesopotamia, Mm -hmm. the Anunnaki. Yeah, this Anu is this supreme god of the Anunnaki. But what they found in De Vere's research, Lawrence Gardner's research, was that Mesopotamia was settled, specifically Sumer in the beginning, was settled by a people called the Ubaid, U-B-A-I-D. You need to look into the Ubaid people, because I'm pretty sure this is exactly who we're talking about. They were the ones that brought agricultural civilization to Mesopotamia. And they're coming from the Armenian Highlands, the Balkans, Transylvania, the Carpathian Mountains, all these mountain ranges, they're pretty famous in ancient history in one way or another, you know? We get closer and closer to like these Caucasus, what was it? Caucasus Caucasus Mountains, where Caucasian comes from. And it's where a lot of these peoples are descending from, these tribes. You know, even when you look into the birthplace of the Indo-Aryans, they just pop into existence in the steppe, of oh, the mountains up there, in Asia Minor. It's just all very interesting. Oh, before that, it's all just primitive man walking around. So I think that's where the uh, obfuscation starts right there. It's pretending that's where we were just kind of wandering nomadic and really not doing anything. I think there's a lot more to it there.
0: Right. Well, and I'm glad you cleared that up because the sky god actually implies knowledge of the sky and the stars and how to navigate obviously across the ocean and even across you know land i mean back then
1: sailors right
0: yeah back then you know people used all sorts of methods to remember you know where they were and i'm sure the stars would have kept them on a straight course on their journeys whether it was land or sea but yeah, that's mm-hmm. fascinating. Now, I'm aware is that the Sumerians had a, a goddess named Inanna, uh, mm-hmm. and I know that's similar to this Nuna, which is sort of connected to this whole Anunnaki etymology web, mm-hmm. right? Because there's, I mean, and it doesn't just show up in. The ones you've mentioned, there's other, I'm sure, languages where we see these t- you know, similar words popping up over and over again, right? Oh,
1: yeah. And if we, uh, dare I say, put the box saga at least in context at all, they break it down so that even letters are important. You know, and, and that's taking it further than I can my brain can even handle sometimes. I've started a boxanga English speaking telegram channel recently just because a friend of ours over overseas, Ananto, has a German-speaking one, Dutch speaking, like they're speaking all sorts of European languages. And I'm like, Well, we need to bring more of this to the West so we can talk about this stuff. A lot of amazing discussions going on in there. A lot of it's pretty intense about how every letter based on this root language of course means something and trying to put that into context with breaking these words down it's probably impossible of course but and we can kind of only guess and build bridges where we can but just the regular etymology i really feel like etymology and etymologists are the bridge between conspiracy theory and reality in a lot of ways because it's one way or another it's going to prove your point and it's really hard to fuck with language, especially when you have etymologists even agreeing that it all comes from phonetics. And that's like one of the biggest factors in what they
0: do. Absolutely. Yeah, no, there's, there's a couple. I'm, I'm looking for the book right now that I mm-hmm. was learning about. I'll find the title. But there's a couple of really interesting connections that were made between the, basically the Hindu culture, the Indian culture, and the, European, the proto-European culture, right? And this term has become kind of taboo now, the term Aryan, right? But this is something that's inextricably connected to this whole story. And there's another book, which now I have two books I got to find the titles of. I mentioned it on a podcast not too long ago, but the author found through these DNA you know, more advanced DNA testing that they have now, that the Native Americans, at least on the East Coast, have a larger genetic connection to Europeans than they do Asians, right? Which kind of goes against the whole Lambridge theory and suggests that they were a part of this Proto-Aryan, Indo-Aryan culture of people that Maybe came from Atlantis, right? Because that's the whole thing. It's like, well, did they leave the Middle East and go to the Americas? Or did all these people leave some place that was closer to what is now the Caribbean, you know, that's now under Mm -hmm. the ocean and, and... they spread out in a central first yes in a circular you know way right that's why we see all these in this circular pattern whether it's the incas the native americans northern europeans southern europeans africans it's all and even beyond there
1: yeah and you notice like wherever you look no matter where you go the aboriginal tribes the you know the Amazonian tribes doesn't matter where you go the traditions differ but I, you know I'm really on a quest to hopefully find more and more connections between all of them and because I think that the main principles of most native people are pretty similar to one another and they're usually the groups I mean think about it, all around the world in the first world looking at native peoples all around the world and their conditions and where how they live we always look at it from such a, They we all respect them in the same exact way. We all say the same thing, like, oh, well, they're guarding their islands. They don't want anyone near them. Now, if they were a first world nation, they'd be, you know, shamed on the news every day and there'd be war and all that kind of stuff. But the fact that they have these Principles. It's like we allow them to be there or the powers that be for some reason allow them to still exist somehow, which is nice. But yeah, I, I find it really crazy, too, that a lot of First Nations have lodges. Mm. They use the term lodge. And I always found that kind of just a random possibility. Maybe it's connected to lodges in Freemasonry or something like that. But I mean, that's unfounded entirely. It's just a random thought. But another really cool thing, I've talked to a number of First Nations people, mainly because I'm really interested in Bigfoot at the same time. And they often say things like our mythology and our history is one in the same, or we don't find any difference between the spirit world and the real world. You know, these distinctions are inconsequential, things like that. And I love that because that's kind of what I'm after. I'm looking for history and mythology being one and the same. And obviously, there's been many great people that have, you know, tried and been successful with that method, like Velikovsky. He often used a lot of cultural folklore and myth to prove his scientific hypotheses, you know?
0: Mm. Yeah, tell, tell us about Velikovsky, because I've talked about him a long time ago. I haven't mentioned him much on the show recently. Maybe people aren't familiar with Emanuel Velikovsky, because I feel like what we're talking about kind of falls under this term, what is it, revisionist history or alternate alternate history right and he's kind of put into that category of oh no he was a revisionist historian his history isn't quite accurate which is you know just how they deride anyone who goes against the mainstream but tell us about emmanuel velikovsky
1: well, and they did that viciously to Velikovsky. You mm-hmm. know, Carl Sagan was a monster. And it's funny, too, because a number of things, I can't remember the details, but a number of things that Velikovsky hypothesized about Venus came true, but they they're only after he was dead. And, you know, they were points that Sagan had roasted him on publicly many times that how impossible things were. But you can look up the fallacies of Sagan's just basically teardown of Velikovsky. But yeah, Velikovsky, I can't remember what he did professionally, but he was fascinated by ancient cultures and ancient mythology, folklore, things like that. And he applied the knowledge of the ancients to scientific work. And I think he was the, was he not the father of uh, electric universe theory as well? I can't remember.
0: Possibly. I might be wrong.
1: <laughs> but I think a lot of electric universe hypothesis or theory stems from a lot of what Velikovsky suggested. But to be honest, I, haven't, I don't know him extensively, but I brought him up because he's one giant that I'm standing on the shoulders of, you know, hypothetically. Because mm. I'm just trying to do the same thing. You know, I'm looking at these cultural myths, you know, these ancient people that are considered by Millions of people around the world, even today, like, oh, they were just primitive, you know, and it's totally the opposite, obviously. And, you know, you work with that a lot as well, so
0: it's... Yeah, he's fascinating. He's a really an interesting character. I don't know. I'm not seeing anything about the electromagnetic th- universe mm-hmm. theory, but okay, he I does talk about... I think you might be thinking of catastrophism because he does talk about that, which is a big part of, like, what Graham Hancock and... And yeah. Randall Carlson are now talking about it. And it's the whole reason why they're still considered like controversial and not mainstream. And that's why they go on like Joe Rogan instead of, you know, the History Channel, which, to be which, fair, what? Graham Hancock had a, what, a great show. What is it called? Ancient something? Ancient Civilization? No, it did. Was that it? Ancient no, it, Civilization? It
1: was like, oh, recently on Netflix, right? Yeah,
0: he had something with Netflix. It was like ancient something it was like two words but either way you know it's
1: kind of well done i think he did an okay job but he also got you know you you go into the comment sections and man i mean he either gets torn apart and either it's over my head even to debate what the debunker is saying sometimes i i can't enter the rig at all you know by the way were you thinking of the vedic home in the north? As one of those books before?
0: No, I we did find Hinduism the book. A little bit. I did find the book I was thinking of. It's by Albert E. Potts. It's called Genetic Genesis, and essentially what they were talking about was, you know what? Now that I'm reading that, I might be confusing that with a, another book. Back to the drawing <laughs> board. Um, That's all good, man. But that but, is a good place for us to at go some back point, to. The, well, the Vedas. let's get back to. Because you do have the term Vedic home here, and you say it's they're the same as the Indo-Aryans. Are you saying that the Tuatha De Anu were the same as the Indo-Aryan people?
1: I'm not entirely sure yet, but, I mean, that's the way it's looking. Okay. It's looking like they there's a serious connection there, and eventually there's connections to the Scythians and the Phoenicians, too for sure. And you know, I want to do wordplay. The Phoenicians just spell it with an F I N I S H first. Right,
0: right, right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well,
1: but yeah, so there was a book called I, I can't I'm blanking on the name too. It was something like the the Vedic home in the North Pole. Okay. And talking about how all the symbolism in the Vedas points to the North Pole being their original home that yeah, because of catastrophe they had to leave. Which is just really crazy because the main anthropological records that have talked about the origins of the Indo-Aryan people and proto-Germanic, proto, you know, all this. The idea is that they were pushed southeast, slowly but surely, Mm. because of the climate and because of catastrophe. And eventually they started to end up where mainstream history puts them. They started in the steppe, the Kurgan steppe in the mountains. And it's funny because that's also where the Canaanites end up as well. Yeah. And that's definitely connected. And I, you know, there's still pages to be turned, you know, but I, I really do feel like the Nephilim story is involved with this as well. You know, if we look at this from more of an allegorical point of view, which is very unpopular in alternative circles these days, but if we look at it as, you know, two different peoples, coming together at war or migrating into each other's areas. The sons of God coming into the daughters of men could be seen as, you know, the sons of Seth and the son and the daughters of Cain Mm. or something like that. There's definitely something there, I think because, you know, whatever they're talking about that it birthed monsters that caused the flood, that's clearly demonization of a group of people. And or demonization of the act of two families or two groups of people coming together that weren't supposed to. Mm. And we know that theme is constant back then. Bloodlines, lineage, keeping things pure.
0: Well, and, you know, for before maybe a couple hundred years ago, people, at least in the Western world, were forced for the most part to live under the impression that the world was as the Bible put it, right? Unless they were, you know, of a different religion. It was this big concept of that kind of skewed what we have as English history and, you know, our early scientists kind of had these ideas as well. So we're just now beginning to establish a more accurate timeline. But I found at least one book that we can reference. It wasn't the one I was thinking of, but it's someone someone who supports the show, recently gifted this to me. Shout out to Chandra. Hopefully we'll get this gentleman on the podcast, but The Empires of Atlantis by Marco Vigato, and hopefully get him on the podcast soon. But he puts it, right here in latter part of his book beginning in about 9600 before the current era climate change started forcing large movements of people as you were just saying so that gives the skeptics uh, a sort of timeline to wrap their heads around cuz i think it is important it's hard to con- conceptualize such vast uh, you know distances in time but When it comes to our history, it kind of makes sense that these things would have happened that long ago for it to be, for the most part, forgotten and easily, you know, left in the dust when these Christianizing forces conquered the parts of Europe that may have been remembering this history and, you know, had it intact more so than it is now. Now we have to use our sort of sherlock holmes abilities to f- figure this all out in in folklore and what what's left mm-hmm. of of the remnants of it but when you look at the megalithic structures they do seem to be concentrated not that there aren't any in asia but they do seem to be concentrated around this area that is so-called atlantis right and I mean, we could have a whole nother podcast about the megaliths of Asia and, and the lost civilization that they may be connected to. And the to.
1: Tocharians, the Tokarian mummies, the red-headed Tocharian mummies. Well, and that's, turd, that's the, something uh,
0: that, well, I, I want to put a pin in that and you could tell yeah, me yeah. more about the Tokarian mummies. But as I was saying that about Asia, I was thinking, well, I did just learn about the Solomon Islands and the red-haired giants there. Even uh, the Maori have legends of them coming to New Zealand and because they've, they only got to New Zealand around like the middle medieval period, right? Like right. when Europe was in its so-called dark ages, the Maori were settling New Zealand and they said there there was a white skin, red haired people there before. And they were like big and tall and kind of monstrous and you know yes it it could be similar to the vikings i mean i that's kind of what came to mind for me or it could be this whole other thing this you know sasquatch you know other human (laughs) giant type creature nephilim even but i think it's all inherently connected and that's why there's been this suppression and why it's still kind of in the realms of you know, paranormal studies rather than, you know, scientific pursuit, it's something that people are altogether kind of entertained by or dismiss as non, not serious, you know, but it exists and you can't look past the fact that all these cultures have similar stories of these giants. And I mean, here we are, two white guys talking about it. So of course, people are going to be like, "Oh, well, of course you want to see everyone as white." It's like, well, that's just what's being problem, told. You know, know? We,
1: we run. I researching all this stuff, man. I started running into a lot of like the neo-Nazi, like support all that kind of. It's like, holy crap! Like, no wonder this is like, this is so taboo to talk about. Like, you start getting into the world wars and everything, and Oh, gee, wow. Why were they after their origins back then? (laughs) It's like, oh, God, what is going on? You know, just a quick note on that, what I found was that the Thule Society, the T-H-U-L-E, Thule Society, that's, you know, indiscriminately connected to Himmler and Hitler and the the SS and all that, the Third Reich, that society goes back all the way to 1806 when the german people in the different city states were all trying to understand their origins they were after their origins they were like a whole movement and they kept getting stomped out by the prussian military over and over again they would change their name so truly wasn't the original name i don't even remember if they even mentioned it but that group under one name or another was researching their past and continuously being stomped out. I don't know much about them yet, but I want to look into them. I, I see you writing, so I'm glad you're taking note of this too, because man, this is like stuff that's like not often talked about, you know, because they indiscriminately connect that with just Himmler and Hitler and their craziness and all that. And I just, I find it funny, you know, a lot of this stuff seems to be a dialectic and it's very hot right now too. So it's dangerous to talk about, you know, but well, <laughs>
0: And i did find another book that i want to reference because it's a controversial subject and it does unfortunately connect to the nazis and yeah i think they had an interest in understanding these ancient mysteries because they wanted to potentially harness whatever technology was lost in the flood right i mean this is something that Many groups have endeavored to find, it seems like, the Templars tracking down the Ark of the Covenant, potentially, and maybe Mm -hmm. other groups that have tried to do that. But there's a a book by Pierre Honore, H-O-N-O-R-E, with a nice little something above the E, and his book is called In Quest of the White God, so already kind of a controversial topic, but... (laughs) When you consider that Veracocha was described as this white, tall white being that gave the, was it the Inca, some, you know, knowledge. And, you know, according to them, they built Machu Picchu and all these other sites. And, you know, it, it falls in line with some of the research this guy, who is, again, controversial, his name's Thor Heyerdahl, he did the Contiki. You've heard of him. Okay, cool. Oh, yeah. I have one of his books on Atlantis downstairs. Oh, cool. Yeah. And his one of his studies involved that topic with Veracocha. And, you know, people kind of leveled these allegations at him that, oh, you're just trying to have like an ethnocentric view of history, which, again, it's like, you know, when you have native cultures and cultures that aren't a part of this ethnicity claiming that there was one at one time a group of people that they describe as white. I mean, is that really ethnocentric to take note of that? I don't think so. But that aside, he went on this boat expedition, basically on a raft the same way the Polynesians would make it. And I guess part of his theory was that the Polynesians went, came from South America rather than Asia, something like that. So that like, whoever got to South America at one point in time, this like group of Atlantean people, they then went out across the Pacific and did a bunch of stuff there, right? So I'm almost certain that's part of Thor's theory and why he took this giant, you know, Polynesian raft across the Southern Pacific Ocean, which is quite a amazing endeavor. And I think they, you know, wrote a book about it. There's probably documentaries about it they were successful. They crashed on a reef somewhere in the Pacific islands, but it just goes to show how easy that sort of travel could have potentially been for people in ancient times. I mean, they use very, you know, rudimentary techniques to build this raft and it was able to, keep them going across that huge distance so i mean i don't know how the flat earth community feels about that voyage i hate to bring them up but i i did i did get some a message saying we i should do more flat earth episodes so i'll at least bring it up to satisfy that one person
1: <laughs> hell yeah i'll do respect to, to the flat earth community you know you'll reject this pretty much wholeheartedly <laughs> Man, that's what we got, you know, when we went on to foil hat to talk box saga, we saw a lot of those comments like, well, it's not flat earth. So, you know, yeah, sorry. Right. You know, we got to explore all avenues, you know, saying we've come to conclusions. Oh, I don't like that idea. I'm not coming to any, I'm just trying to find, you know, what makes sense and see if it fits, you know, and if I'm wrong. But man, you find people like Robert Sepper, if you're familiar with his work, uh, he was a big, like. You know, it helped me pat myself on the back a little bit, like, okay, at least I'm not alone on this. And then it opened up the world to a lot of other authors and everything. But, you know, he's extremely controversial and there's anthropology majors that go at him on YouTube and say why he's a terrible anthropologist and cherry picks. But, you know, he's got a great community around him that shows how he doesn't cherry pick at all. They rip the debunkings apart, which, of course, is always an important part of the process to, to witness, you know, you got to look at the whole thing. But yeah, let's go back to giants for a second, because what's interesting is I found some native people called the Susquehanna people, and there's a book written by, I'm of course going to blank on it, that's our theme tonight, but the book was describing these people and it said that they were a giant people, thus they were attired. And I found that statement really bizarre, that they were a giant people, so therefore they were attired. So they were really big, so they had clothes. like That, that just seems like the dumbest statement to, to make in a book. It doesn't make any sense. Until you realize that back then, attired, because this book came from like the early 1900s, the word attired specifically meant dressed in elegant garments and expensive clothing. So it basically, it was referring to nobility. I'm finding that this word giant was synonymous with nobility, which is interesting. There's a Netflix show. It's kind of teen angsty, but there's some good stuff in there. It's called Ragnarok, and it ended horribly. I'll let everyone know that. It was not the greatest show. But what's interesting is that it's the Vikings, the the Viking gods versus the giants, just like in Norse mythology. But just like in my understanding, these giants weren't huge at all. They were just the richest Family in the country of Sweden
0: in this story. So, so giant giant might be a term like wealthy. Is that what you're kind of saying?
1: In a way, and I don't mean to dismiss it away from the literal way we usually take it. And I do think there's definitely evidence for larger human beings, you know, Sasquatch included, but, you know, the wild men of, of North America, all these stories we have all over the world... I don't doubt that. But at the same time, it's really interesting that, at least on one level, this word giant seems to be synonymous with nobility. Yeah. And it does go back to the saga and a lot of other northern tales, and unfortunately the Nazis, with this breeding the strongest, best, most powerful race of people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you remove the Nazi stuff from that, this culture is all over the place. And a lot of aboriginal cultures breed their children and raise their children to be warriors and right. conquerors of nature
0: you know well, every single but, culture uh, does that yeah i absolutely. mean it, you know even the indigenous tribes that get so much sympathy you know they consistently conquest each other and you know any geneticist will tell you And that was a big part of that book i mentioned earlier i still don't have the name of it uh, but <laughs> I, actually i should find it's in my downloads um but that was a big part of his theory is like you know human beings as a whole are a lot more similar than we appear because there have been so many waves of like groups of people that go in conquest and then become like a a funnel point in the gen like there's a wide range of genetic strains and then it all funnels at one point in history and then it goes back again and then it funnels mm. again right and maybe like the a good reference for people that maybe everyone's heard is like Genghis Khan and how many people, I mean, how many Pakistani guys I've met just with the last name Khan <laughs> is amazing, let alone the uh, amount of people that allegedly have Genghis Khan's, you know, connection through their dna right they have the they trace him as a as an ancestor so right this kind of thing is going on and yeah you know when it comes to the giant thing it's funny as you're saying that i'm like where have i heard this before michael won and mike has gone into all the research with susquehanna river so as you were saying that That's right i started to remember what he looked into and i don't quite remember exactly what he said about that particular statement, but as you were saying, it kind of rung a bell in my head. And it, what I gathered from Mike's research is that they might've been giants, but what you said about them being wealthy fits in to what he was saying. And it also fits into this book I just found called The Rediscovery of Lost America. And they talk about how there are these iron forges all across the mounds in Ohio so, wow. not to say that these people had iron jewelry, but you know there's the possibility that you know Native Americans were not stone Age as anthropologists describe them. Clearly, there's evidence of forges, you know primitive ones, medieval style ones, but who knows I mean, maybe it wasn't just Europeans that were using these here in the Americas, maybe the natives participated in this and traded with them or who knows what
1: that seems to be the tale no matter which religion you look into it's Mm -hmm. these angels or whoever these people that come in and bring all this wisdom to cultures in the south or the southern regions if you will below the lands notice that there's really no I mean, this is just Box Saga stuff. I'm just spitballing here, but the lands aspect is really cool. How there's no lands really below all, you know, the northern territories. There's Thailand, but they say that's not connected. But other than that, the countries that end in land are all northern, and so it fits in with this alt land east concept of Atlantis. And that's my favorite part, and I think that's the most important part that that like. Should be extracted from the saga and kind of carried out and looked at because you know we have the Plato narrative, the Solon narrative of Atlantis, of course, but it's like the tail end, you know. As you know, you went into great detail. There's so much to do with Atlantis in this in that region that too many sources are pointing to the same thing that Atlantis was definitely something, and it may have been more than just a capital. It may have been more than just a a nation. And I like that the saga does claim that it's a time period. It's so bizarre to hear that, but at the same time, it fits in pretty well, you know, with when all this was going on, supposedly.
0: Mm -hmm. So the book I was talking about with the DNA is called who we are and how we got here by David Reich. I highly recommend that. Okay. And then the other one I was thinking about that has the connections between the German language and the Hindu language. And he basically says that does humanity originate from outer space? Why have we forgotten who we are and where we are from? What is the common language of all humanity? And can it be used to solve many ancient mysteries? What are the linguistic secrets of ancient German, Basque, Estonian, Maori, and Australian Aboriginal? Mm -hmm. So all of those languages, according to this author, are connected. And he found this out. I think this book, it's been republished, but I'm pretty sure it was written like pre-World War II. So I think that was part of why they ended up going to, I could be wrong about that, but
1: what's the name of it again? Need to write this down.
0: Well, now that I think about it, no, Frederick Dotson is still alive, but okay. So yeah, he's definitely, he wrote this book not too long ago but it's called Extraterrestrial Linguistics and the Secrets of Human Origins. This podcast wow. might as well be called Books I've Heard About on Mysterious Universe.
1: Dude, you know, you and I never got around to doing our little book club, so here, here's our little special edition.
0: Well, we're both readers, so it's like, yeah, yeah we ought to do it. I've found, I mean, so many PDFs lately, it's crazy. Yeah. Um,
1: and, you know, you can find The Dragon Legacy by Devere, I
0: think, oh, yeah? for
1: free, somewhere out there, and same cool. with a lot of Lawrence Gardner's PDFs as well. Yeah. It's unreal. It's unreal. If we want to get back a little bit to some of the the etymology, I found that the word el, the ancient word el, uh, in Sumerian, it meant shining, the shining ones. And where do we hear that? Well, elven is is a Gaelic word, and it means the shining ones. Right, the elves. And it's right there. And in Babylonia, it was the derivative elu, Mm-hmm. And that meant shining one. And, of course, we have the Elohim, plural of El. And it's it's just crazy. And then we keep going. In Saxony, it was Elf, A-E-L-F. In Britain, it became the typical Elf, E-L-F. In Akkad, it was Illu. In Ireland, Alil. Elil in Wales. Gaelic Cornwall, Southwest England. El is the equivalent to Anglo-Saxon Engel. Old French is "engelé" a n g e l e like and English, you guessed it, angel. <laughs> wow! Oh. So it covers the whole gamut. You know, pick your mythology. <laughs> you know, we can talk about all kinds of tribes talking about shining or bright ones coming down or fair the fairies, you know, the fair folk, the fair people, Right. you know, dare I invoke George R. R. Martin and the folk behind the wall with all the giants, the ones that are, you know, disregarded from the seven kingdoms of society and left to rot in the North, in the cold, the free folk, right. which of course he's a, you know, he's a protege of Tolkien and Tolkien was a you know, Anglo-Saxon language professor, and he absolutely understood all this stuff, and he translated Finnish grammar right before writing his first elven language, which, oddly enough, looks like a Middle
0: Eastern language written out. Yeah, I remember that from when I was a kid. I love Lord of the Rings, and Mm. it's what is it in Star Trek? They have the whole language that uh, the Klingons speak, right? Like where fiction blurs the lines of reality in there people who probably have, like, alien abductions where the aliens speak cling on to them, and then you guessed it, that person's a huge Star Trek fan, but <laughs> I wonder how many elf, you know, fae folk encounters have happened from people who are massive Lord of the Rings fans, but... Yeah. That's... How many
1: people who stand around in fairy circles having no idea that this term comes from the old round table courts
0: that the Scythians held? Well, and you mentioned here that the sprites were the ancient Scythian ghost warriors who painted their bodies gray and blue or gray slash blue to look like corpses.
1: Yep. To look like the dead. Wow. And you hear that. You ever hear of a, a book by Michael Crichton called The Eaters of the Dead? No. It's a book about these Viking-like, very primitive warriors against these like Catholic missionaries and stuff like that. And they're all dressed like monsters and dead people. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I also found with uh the Pics. The Picts were said to like dress with animal skins and they looked like uh what we see from Freaking modern Western films about Native Americans and the way they would portray them. The pics were like, Even though there's a werewolf in the Pix legends that has nothing to do with the werewolves that we're familiar with, they're like, symbolizes the protectors of men, wounded children, things like that. It's very interesting how different they are. And then it goes on to say that they were hired by this military and this military, like all these factual militaries that we knew existed, you know, because they knew the wilderness better and like... What the hell is going on? And then I remembered Weirwolf. And shit, this was the monster that scared me as a child, as a you know a silly little kid. Weirwolf. Weir is a royal house, a very royal house. And it actually is the same name as De'Veer. So once again, we're back at the dragon, the house of the dragon.
0: Wow. Yeah. And you have something in here connecting the dragons to the druids. Yeah,
1: well, because the Druids, the Druide, well, that's another one, the D-R-U-I-D-E with the little thing above it, Druide sounds very much like Tuade, But yeah, the Druids were the serpents, right? They were supposedly what we assume St. Patrick kicked out of Ireland, right? The pagans, the Druid priests. Well, the Druid priests in Cornwall, England were the Pixie, which is where we get the term Pixies from. So this is all connected. And the dragon, of course, is the serpent symbolism once again. Yeah. And that would be, in a, we could do serpent symbolism for three hours, of course. We know that, um, the obvious ones included. But um the dragon word uh, is related to a shaman or a seer, mm. someone who sees clearly. And, of course, we don't ever hear that. And even in our truth-telling circles, you know, we're breaking the matrix. We're assuming dinosaurs were dragons. And unfortunately, the myth of the flying, fire-breathing dragon is not as old as the word dirkasti, which is the proper word where Edracon is a unqualified past tense. Edrakon is where we get dracon which is where we get Draco, which is where we get dragon. The oldest form is Dirkusai, and this means one who sees clearly, one with the sight, one with the deathly sight, one with the deathly sight. That's what we hear about dragons as well. And the thing, the hypnotizing gaze. But people see it as this scary thing, but it's it's more like one who walks on the other side, Mm. one with deathly sight. Like Jedi's?
0: Like, like the like ancient, the, Jedis? Like the, oh,
1: the, like the Sith.
0: Oh, oh, okay. So, these aren't <laughs> the good guys. Okay. Well, well,
1: hey, but that's Hollywood painting history in a certain direction, right? Mm-hmm. But, but hey, I'm not calling, I think this is beyond good. And well, I and, think we said that the last time we were here on your show talking about the saga, where this goes so far, be like back in time beyond. Our modern notions of who is good and who is evil, which symbols are related to good and evil, things like that.
0: Well, and it says here that dragons to the Greeks conveyed enlightenment to the Gaelic Mm -hmm. Gales. They represented sovereignty. Chinese, they think they bring good fortune to this day, right? I mean, there's still dragons represented in their culture, uh, despite the Chinese, you know who. We wouldn't even say their (laughs) name. And then of course Merlin and the whole world of the the royal court and all the mystical stuff going on there, which
1: yeah, the Merlins. you know yeah.
0: seems so far away from the rest of, you know, the Eastern mysticism. But when you really look at it, we were talking about this with Tom Higgins, like the Celtic ideas of, you know, nature and that sort of mysticism is really not all that different from Taoism, you know, and no there seems to be a common bridge there, right? Because Buddhism evolved out of what was, you know, proto-Hinduism.
1: Absolutely. And when you think about that, the Hindus come from the Vedic society that came in there and gave them their agriculture, their religion, their spirituality, all of that, or at least what we consider religion today. Mm. I really, along this line that we're thinking, it's going to, you know, piss a lot of people off, but it's like, This is a whole new way to look at it because, I mean, the word God is tainted. When you look back at it, it's not, you know, specifically some metaphysical being in the sky. This word isn't related to that. It's related to willpower, kingly, you know, kings, things like that, Mm. true intention. It's a Germanic word. I can't remember what the root of it is, but it was pronounced like got or gut. Mm. And when you think about go with your gut, the brain in the gut, the brain in the stomach, you know, these things are all tied together and it's hard to get through to some people about this because they will not budge. I think even for people that have left, say, Christianity or Western religion and gone spiritual and went Eastern, it's like, yeah, well, a lot of that's handed to us too. It's all handed to us. Mm. We each have a spiritual experience that we have access to within, but... This is my thesis that everywhere you look, they want you to look outside of yourself, whether it's spirituality or religion, whatever you want to call it, polytheism, monotheism, it's all an obfuscation of the path within because you don't have to go within if you're accessing all these other entities out there or allowing them to be the more powerful entities or something like that. I don't know. I'm kind of butchering my own words here, but oh, I think you I get, get what I'm, you get what I'm picking up. Yeah. You know, I it's get a it. theme that we all come to no matter what we talk about conspiracies. Yeah. It's to take away our power and make us think that we're weaklings. Well, perfect. Put the God in the sky then, mm. you know, put mm. aliens in the sky instead of behind fucking black budget projects.
0: Yeah, well, and I think a lot of times when people have these sort of encounters, I mean, I was listening to something today where they were talking about real encounters with dwarves and fairies. And you there was a story, I think it came from like 18th century England, where a a little girl told her father, pretty soon I'm going to go live with the fairies, you know, don't worry about me. And then she disappears and the whole village, the whole town, whatever, thinks that they're, you know, the father killed his daughter. And she turns up like a few months later and tells everybody like, no, my dad didn't kill me. You know, I was out and she explained the whole thing saying she was in fairy world and she some weird details like we had to drive incognito in these invisible cars. So it must have been, you know, 19th century or late 1800s if, you know, if they're using the car reference. But yeah, it's just really, and that's just one of many weird stories where people get, you know, basically like missing 411 kind of style stuff where they lose track of time and then maybe end up somewhere, you know, years later, dead or never seen again, you know. Maybe this has something to do with it. And you point out in your notes here that leprechauns are not exactly what we see on St. Patrick's Day, which is funny because there aren't that many leprechaun sightings. As much as people see dwarves and things like that, I wonder if leprechauns maybe have, like the clown, and my friend, I don't know if you've interviewed Paul Stobbs, but maybe leprechaun is sort of one of these forms that has symbolic characteristics that represent something much more sinister you know well i think we
1: do have a real like a twisting up of history and Mm. mysticism you know because like so the word leprechaun comes from lepra corpon, which basically means scaly body which again we're representing the dragon right and they, they usually would wear green plated armor that looked like scales these leprechauns these are now. When we say that, it sounds ridiculous because of our modern conception of what a leprechaun is. Same with a fairy, the sprite, goblins. You know, if you've seen Harry Potter, they're the rulers of the banks, right? Well, that goes all the way back. But before money, it was that they were the keepers of the wisdom. They were keepers of the knowledge. Knowledge that goes back to the gnomes as well. Genosis. Mm. It's all connected to this, which is crazy.
0: Gnomes, too. Yeah, that's another dwarves. Gnomes is probably a better term for them.
1: Yeah, and you, like you said earlier, it's they're so far apart, right? You'd never think to connect the Eastern stuff or even the Middle Eastern religious stuff with stuff that's all the way over in Ireland and and, and Europe. But lo and behold, it's it's very much all here. Oh, and it's yeah. connected to these damn sea people. Absolutely. You know? I even take it like to Jordan Maxwell, right? He talks about the law of water. Why are we governed that way? If what Jordan Maxwell's saying, with, yeah. well, everything's water. Well, maybe it's in connection with these
0: friggin' sea people. Yeah, I know they love their symbolism. Yeah, Admiralty law, and you know, even corporations have their you know foundation in these shipping companies back in, you know, the what was it, the 14th. Fifteen hundreds, they would sail around, getting resources from all sorts of places, and you would take human slaves even. And yeah, it's incredible stuff. There's a book that I've been meaning to read by Steven Sora, and it's all about the you know these people that sailed around in ancient times. And I think there's something to it, man. I mean, now that we're on the subject, the Tuatha de Danann. I mean, they're kind of like the this possibly seafaring race, this kind of connecting oh, the dots between these megalithic sites. I mean, is that kind of what we're circling around here?
1: Yeah, absolutely. They are the two on, two on, two on a Anu, Tuane de Anu. Right. They it's the it's the name rendered in its older form well, blatantly and it's the same symbolism the same physical descriptions once again we have dare I say we got
0: caucasians you know well now who would be the fomorians because that's a big part of that whole saga is there's the fomorians who are allegedly like the adversaries to right. this group right yeah i don't i don't know exactly man i i haven't been able to trace much of the Fomorians, and
1: i know people have done more research on them than i have but it, it there were plenty of people living all over the place when the tuatha showed up mm. you know we they had natives living there so, and but they, I think the Formorians were another invading force, right? I, if I'm not mistaken, a lot that's the thing. The invasions of Ireland is it's an incredible book because it's all about these multiple invasions that kept happening to this mm. area of the world, which is weird, you know. But uh, yeah, the Twatha seem to be the elven bloodline that's discussed in Lord of the Rings, basically. I mean, when I was a kid, I was always wondering, why did he make the elves, like, big and tall? I thought they were, like, happy little creatures, you know? And as per Lawrence Gardner's words, they've just been relegated to fiction,
0: you know? Right, right. Well, and yeah, now they're part of, like, a, the whole Christmas culture, and that's mm-hmm. kind of, it represents <laughs> all mean. sorts of stuff.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Have it, you heard of the 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 donation of constantine have you heard of that no tell me about it so it's a fraudulent document that still exists and is still hush-hush kind of accepted just not even talked about anymore but at one time it's literally what gave the pope and the church indefinite you know divine power to rule and choose rulers on the planet um it was Delivered and put into action in, I believe, 751. And it just that was like basically the point where they church overpowered and destroyed the Merovingians. Um, the Merovingians are connected to this ancient lore, this elven race, this yeah, even the supposed Anunnaki. Mm-hmm they're supposedly connected to that the blue bloods right so it's really weird how it's all tied in and i'm i still have unanswered questions you know there's yeah. a lot of pieces still missing
0: yeah well and you know hopefully someone out there is keeping a list going of all the books we've mentioned so far <laughs> so let me add another one to the list as i was mentioning the Famorian's. I was thinking maybe it has something to do with this book I recently came across called the dark gods. Maybe the, you know, in the same way we think of the Tuatha day done as fairies and, you know, fairies don't always have a, a rosy and sweet connotation. And a lot of circumstances, they are akin to like gray abductions as Joshua Cutchin points out. Mm-hmm. So maybe these you know, dark gods, these Fomorians are somewhat like, you know, the shadow people or what type the types of beings that affect people during uh, sleep paralysis events and things like that, you know, I mean, it really is, it's not a comforting subject to look into, but there are tons of paranormal encounters that people have, you know, even people who don't mess around with the occult, but frequently when people start to mess around with occult rituals and stuff, they run the risk of interacting with these gods or these beings. I shouldn't call them gods. But Juan and I, when we were talking about Passport to Magonia, Jacques Vallée's book earlier, we came across a passage that talks about the elementals. And these seem to be a, a group of beings that some people describe as being like unhappy with humans. And maybe there's a certain reason why, you know, ancient cultures gave certain types of offerings and whatnot to these beings. Maybe they're keeping a certain harmony with these beings and, you know, these megalithic sites and whatnot could have different purposes aside from just utilitarian or spiritual ones maybe they have this sort of gathering place effect where they can you know give energy to these beings and make them come to life like that's why people have accounts of these beings in the times when maybe these megaliths were in operation i don't know i'm just kind of now i'm just speculating
1: (laughs) no that's totally fine man i i it brought to mind a conversation I had with Freddie Silva about his tours in Egypt. And when he goes, takes people into these sacred temples, man, like they have some pretty wild experiences. And it's, they're coming out of there, each and every one of them's like reporting, seeing like silhouettes and people moving through them and the whole room in the temple and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm talking to Freddie Silva, who's not a conspiracy theorist kind of rolls his eye conspiracy theory uh, you know he's a great guy he's very down to earth and he's kind of after the same lines of thinking that i'm on and he's telling me these crazy stories about them seeing this stuff and him included of course and so i can't dismiss any of that man i've had some wild experiences too you know mm. yeah and i don't know if we could This might be a different topic altogether, but just to juxtapose this with like the fact that I don't want people thinking that I'm saying all of like the metaphysical world is bullshit, but I think there's a very good reason why we're constantly forever and ever, whether you're religious or not, we're citing the words and concepts that were handed down to us, you know, as these things. And I would say that what's changed are not the words, but are the meanings of the words have changed, and they've been helped to change. I think it has been a little bit of a game of telephone, but for the most part, we're looking at all these words, and it kind of feels ridiculous to talk about leprechauns with plated armor and
0: everything. But at the same time, it's because the meanings have been altered. Well, it sounds a lot more like reptilians, and there are modern and ancient accounts of people interacting with those types of beings. So, yeah. And
1: the Naga of Egypt and the Brotherhood of the Serpent in Mesopotamia started by the god Enki, which is clearly the serpent in the Bible and all that. Yeah. It's such a weird conundrum because I think it's both. It's, you know, metaphysical and historical, you know, and I'm not throwing either one out, Mm. kind of trying to find my place in the middle But I lean towards Buddhism with like the universal one and all that, you know, that everything goes back to the one of consciousness being all unified and everything. So, Mm. and I know that's kind of a, a concept that's kind of pushed by the new age, but I think it's a little bit hijacked in that category, you know, and I think there is a primordial kind of idea there and a philosophy behind it. But yeah, I'm kind of just trailing off too.
0: (laughs) Well, and I was thinking as you're saying that, you know, going back to our point about erasing history, like you see an equal resurgence in interest in all this stuff, thanks to people like Graham Hancock. And, you know, all that stuff might not be as sensational as what we're talking about. It might also be, you know, trying to assimilate more towards the mainstream whereas we're you know we're looking at books where people are talking about Atlantis and and you know connections I mean I don't know maybe I'm I mean, off. Atlantis
1: is pretty mainstream it feels like it, it's you know, become pretty guy, mainstream Jimmy Corsetti who went on Rogan and brought up the Sahara what is that right. called? Like the, the rush, the rush. I can't remember. I You got. You know what I'm talking about.
0: Well, and John, it's like John, or I'm sorry, Michael Laflemme in his book kind of points that out. Like, well, you know, does it make sense that this would be Atlantis? Like, it seems so far away from everything else that we're looking at here. You know, like, right? And yeah, yeah, I do and wonder. He's following if,
1: the Plato narrative too. Just sorry to cut it. Out. Just real no, quick to no, finish no, go that go point is that you know we call it like. Edgy or it's like countercultural or conspiracy theory to talk about Atlantis. It's mainstream. It's literally part of the narrative that I learned in school about Plato. Now, of course, the teacher had his own opinion about. Well, that's just you know, it's not no nothing real to that story. But yes, this is what Plato. Blah blah blah. It was. It's been part of our mainstream history the whole damn time, mm. and that is slightly worrisome. You know. And, of course, we know that they love to play both sides. They love to control both sides, which is uh, taking me down some pretty squirrely territory for sure.
0: That's Yeah, and that's kind of where I'm aiming towards is as the stuff that was once taboo becomes kind of controlled opposition or whatever, however you put that phrase uh, Mm -hmm. more precisely, maybe there's a, a way to put it. It seems like people then go against that narrative and I'm not necessarily putting Atlantis and Tartaria in opposition to one another, but I wonder what your thoughts, you know, when you look in all this, these different directions and then you see, you know, a lot of people in the, at least on the Instagram and YouTube, you know, world and the conspiracy community, you know, espousing this like Tartaria thing. It makes me like wonder like where all that stuff falls into line with the rest of the stuff we're looking at and, and, is Tartaria pushing us away from the real evidence of our lost human origins? Because not that I am not interested in it. It sounds a little too fantastical for me at times. That's my only problem with it.
1: Yeah. Some of it seems like it's absolutely rooted in history that's kind of been obscured, but then then we as a grand community kind of take it into many different directions, you know, I talked to someone who looked into the, the science behind the idea of uh, liquefaction for mud floods. And they were like, all those buildings would be billions of pieces. <laughs> they would not be, they wouldn't be like have a few floors buried or whatever. So I think like, you know, what, what are we talking about? A mud flood? I mean, floods move tons of mass. They move matter. They move mud. So, I mean, what's the difference between a flood and a mud flood? I don't know. I haven't really looked into that kind of stuff, but the Tartars were definitely a real people. I almost wonder if maybe Tartaria is, one, obscured for a reason, but then also like there as like a, not a decoy necessarily, like there's something to it, but it's kind of overshadowing something older and more, more, dare I say, important. But I don't know. I haven't looked at, I've never looked into Tartaria enough specifically to speak on it with any authority, you know, but uh, perhaps it is a continuation of whatever else we're trying to figure out from earlier than that time period, you know? Yeah. It's mentioned a lot in the same book. You have ever seen, you must have this book because you have so many. It's called Mystic Masonry. No, I don't have that, but I'll write it down. <laughs> I think it's called Oriental Mystic Masonry. Okay. And I don't know the author, but I know that there's a Parsons being quoted in that book. And I don't know if it's Jack Parsons for Christ's sake, but it's a Parsons being quoted. And it's talking about when America and Egypt were one and the same. And they mention the Tartars like in the same paragraph. I think I screenshotted it like three years ago maybe i'll dig and find it for you and, and send it to you
0: is it ancient yeah, mystical Mystic masonry. oriental masonry that's it okay yeah Who wrote I found that? It. it says climber r Swinberg, ruben swinberg Swinberg. Mm-hmm. weird well
1: interesting nonetheless for sure mentioning climber. tartaria and egypt and america being like yeah. one in the same and saying that masonry owes not its origins to egypt or babylon but america
0: well and when you look at all of the place names that have like this whole egypto factor to it you know it's, yeah it's going on more so in the midwest because that egyptomania period happened it coincided with a lot of the development in that area but the Grand Canyon, right? And I'm sure you've heard the Kincaid whole oh, story yeah. with the, you know, tomb in the Grand Canyon that they flooded over or the entrance caved in and they could never find it again, supposedly. Well, right. I mean, that's just one of many examples and even phoenix Corey daniels was on the show talking about how phoenix arizona the masons that built it called it phoenix because they recognized that there was like an ancient civilization that was once there and they were like the phoenix rising from these ancient ashes and i would
1: say that those masons represented that ancient culture and you know where the phoenix comes from it's the phoenicians
0: (laughs) right right well and yeah i mean who knows that the uh, English were supposedly sailing all the way up to Canada around the west coast of the Americas. You know, I think, like, the whole Drake expedition happened before the Spanish even got there. So clearly this information was present, like, that you can take this route. You know, that's something that always boggled my mind, like, how they knew exactly where to go when they came to the Americas. Like if this was just you know a place that they had freshly discovered you would think they would have it would have taken them much longer to conquer but no they knew exactly what to do they went straight to the leader they fell in line directly with what was it the aztecs mythology or i hope it was the aztecs and not the mayans i, I always mix them up but aztec was colcolcon i think and the
1: mayans were Quetzalcoatl was their god, but it's basically the same god. Yeah, I think the Aztecs were Cocolcoan.
0: Well, I'm thinking of the whole story with you know Montezuma and mm-hmm. you know the other guy who conquered them and oh okay did it in 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 like the span of a couple months. You know, this whole South American empire just destroyed within yeah. The, Span of a few months. There. Yeah, it just <laughs> seems like they had some sort of foreknowledge or they had some sort of information about these cultures. So, yeah, I mean, who knows, man? It could be that the Phoenicians were in Arizona and that, that's what the Masons were pointing to. I mean, they're, they're definitely in Florida. There are places around us, you know, in New England that have biblical names and there's a place not too far from me now called Canaan, right? So we know what that implies. Have you gone and checked it out? (laughs) Yeah, I've driven through there. It's, you know, it's farming town, but back in the day, Mm -hmm. that area was known for its iron forges and actually not too far from where I live now, there's a place called Satan's Kingdom. And oh, I was trying to dive down the rabbit hole of how that place got its name. And I think I'm going to have to do a whole episode on it because it is, there's a ton of stuff, but apparently there were some iron forges going on here too. So that was a big business in the colonial days. I don't think that has any connection to the whole Satan's kingdom thing though. Probably.
1: But then we also have those New England rock walls too. I think mm. I don't know if you and I have really got into that, but you, I think you had Brad on your show way back in the day, right? Brad wrote a book about I can't remember his last name. Brad Olson. Brad Brad Olson. I think he wrote a book about the New England. Maybe I'm thinking of someone else. I don't know. I thought he did, but someone wrote a really great book about the New England rock walls and how they are not what is what they claim uh, as like you know property lines for settlers back in the day that. Those rock walls were here long before that. Mm, mm. And it's weird. I have them all throughout my woods. They're they're everywhere. They're down in Connecticut where you are. And a lot of them lead to little temples in the woods. Like we have one up here in Upton, Massachusetts. And these rock walls converge and there's a cave there. And it's suspected that it's druidic.
0: The upton, those the upton chamber yeah that's right stone yeah. chamber yeah there's a ton of authors you might be thinking of jim Vieira, hugh newman those guys wrote hey, shout a out few to Brad books Olson on for it. no reason <laughs> no brad's brad's written about sacred places in north america so he definitely yeah. mentioned it i don't know if he's gone as in depth but oh man i've totally tara and i have gone down that rabbit hole a ton we have a bunch of books on that subject and uh, yeah i I think, you know, a lot of it could have been farming, but maybe the Native Americans were farming that land before the settlers came, and that's why there was all this, these stone walls. I mean, they certainly have enough lichen and, and moss on them to be very old in, in some instances. But But yeah, man, I mean, there's so many avenues that we can go down with this research, and I definitely want to have you back on the show. Maybe we can both read one of these many books we've mentioned and then we should do do like a a little bit like a a book club book study kind of thing on it but yeah man as we start to wrap up here what do we have in store for the deep share any good interviews coming out soon anything that you want to promote any projects in the works sure man well i appreciate that i'm
1: hypothetically hopefully maybe someday i'm trying to put this together i want to try to raise money to get a documentary film trip underway. I'm planning on going overseas to Scandinavia to go to Sweden and Finland. And if I have time, I want to go to Norway as well to visit all kinds of historical sites I meet up with Yoke, meet up with a lot of people, do some interviews with some really fascinating people. And so, yeah, I'm trying to raise money there for that. And I just, finally got some merch out my store is finally open and uh, you can find that in my link tree it's the deep store and it's got all kinds of wonderful merch they'll piss people off when you wear it you know but yeah i got that and uh, you know our mutual friend shane Newsom of the i Newsome podcast you know we were on his his what is it two year anniversary yeah, two year. yeah that was great and uh, he and i have been podcasting a lot together we were doing a patreon show but I just decided that we were just going to put it out for free as like a sideshow, And so we do that a lot. And now we're getting horns up back together, which cool. is the metal show that we do together with Jeff Fernandez from shadow band podcasts. So that's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have some guests on from some big bands in the metal scene. If you're into metal, we got some cool people lined up. Yeah. And I'm just pumping out episodes, trying to do the research and do interviews at the same time. So I think, I'm going to be trying to put out more workshops rather than say interviews, you know, talking to people that I'm talking to about the things that I'm researching specifically and just kind of workshop with each other on podcasts. You know, there's a lot to be gained from the audience point of view there, I think too, because we're all just kind of trying to put the pieces together, man. And, Trying to use as little bias as possible while doing it. Yeah,
0: that's a great way to put it.
1: But to frame yeah, my, it, workshopping oh, sorry. it. Sorry, <laughs> my I wanted to mention before I forget because I never mentioned it. But the deepshare.com is like yeah. up and running now, and uh, yeah, that's where you can kind of access everything too. I cool. never
0: had that before, so now it's it's there. Well, that'll be linked in the description, and I'd be happy to join you for a workshop. I think that's a great idea, and definitely something that I've been trying to come up with like a, a, a way to conceptualize it, and, and that's a good way to, to frame it, I mean, on an idea level, because there's a lot of pressure. You know, Obviously, people listening who don't have podcasts probably don't care much about the whole process that goes into it, but you know and I know that it's not easy to just sit in front of a microphone and talk to just anybody. I mean, it, it's easier when somebody maybe has a book, right? I mean, those are our ideal guests because we could read their book and take a bunch of notes and then ask them those questions. But I love conversations like this where you and I just kind of free flow and come up with ideas and workshopping it is a great way to frame it. I think it takes a little bit of the pressure off of it. So yeah, maybe we did a little workshop in uh, today and uh, yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate you joining me on the show.
1: I appreciate you having me, man. Yeah, that's kind of what I figured this would be, you know. Uh, I've been trying to tell this story on a number of podcasts, and I think, um, you know, some of us are more interested in these specific topics than others. So I'm glad that we got to talk about this because I know that you're interested in this stuff. And, yeah, I think we the, – the idea that we're never going to figure out the past it's just too long ago, and I, I think that's a fallacy, man. I think we have all the pieces we need, but we're just – We're searching in the dark a lot of times, you know, Mm -hmm. the more we get together on these workshops, right? That's the way to do it. Well, and And I call us out on our bullshit too. That's what I urge more than anything. I'm not one to like block if you're, dissenting my ideas you know i want i please because i feel dumb i'm like i found this can anyone verify it for me
0: please yeah you know oh no i love that i mean i delete the mean comments for sure but i uh (laughs) i when people have like objections or corrections or even just want to share share a source of info i love that so please i encourage that And uh, thanks for joining me again, man. This is awesome. I appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to the next one. And listeners, until next time, immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are in the now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning into this very special episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast with Andrew Rouse. Of course, if you want to hear the ad-free version of this episode, uh, you can go and listen on Patreon or Substack, although it is kind of already too late for that, right? But I did um, record a extended outro for this episode for supporters only Where i went through our spotify q a so if you listen to the show on spotify you can answer uh, these q a's that say like what did you think about the episode and then i can go in and i can publish or delete the comments that i get and i i do that on the uh, patreon so i just go in i read the comments i publish the nice ones uh, i read out the interesting ones and sometimes i delete The crazy comments or the mean ones. So, you get to hear all that if you sign up and support the show on Patreon or Substack. Of course, this episode ran a little short. We recorded late and I was tired towards the hour 30 mark. So, you heard the whole interview. There's no extended uh, addition to this episode, but uh, we will be continuing our deep dive into this subject over the course of the next few months. Uh, hope you enjoyed this sort of general uh, coverage that we did in this episode and the previous one and uh, next episode we'll be talking about something completely different so look forward to that thanks for being here and like i said support the show on patreon or substack to uh, have an ad free experience and get extended ad free editions of each episode Uh, again For this episode, there was no uh, bonus part of the conversation. You heard the whole conversation, but I did go into the Spotify comments. So leave your Spotify comments and uh, maybe you can hear my response in the supporters only Patreon or Substack outro. Sounds confusing. Maybe. I don't know. Should be pretty simple. If you sign up on Patreon or Substack, you get an entirely different RSS feed that gives you access to an ad free version of the show and exclusive extensions to each episode for supporters only. How about that? That was pretty simple. I'm going to try to rehearse that and say that the same way every time. Uh, you also get access to Substack uh, articles, video versions of the show. And I have some bonus podcasts that I do with my friend Juan, uh, Falconelli Fridays, where we go in and try to track down who Falconelli is. And we also talk about all these other weird, strange, esoteric, and occult mysteries. So if you're into that kind of stuff, you don't want to miss out. Sign up on Patreon or Substack today. Become one of the founding 250 And yeah, once we get 250 paid supporters on Patreon, I will be committing to doing in-person interviews, which may be very difficult. I've been saying this and this might be very difficult. So I might even just do like mini documentaries instead. Um, Maybe you guys wanna see me do something completely different. So if you have any ideas or suggestions for what we can do, At that 250 goal, I'm very open to changing it, but I definitely want to commit to doing something once a month where we have a camera and we go out in the field, investigate or interview, uh, check things out. So look forward to that. More good things to come here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and uh, send us a one-time donation if you appreciate the show. Of course, you're getting 3 Uh, entire episodes this week Uh, so show us some love in return hit me up on venmo or paypal at mystic mark you can also send me some money on cash app just use the cash symbol then mark steves s-t-e-e-v-e-s jr and yeah that'll really help me continue to put out three episodes a week hint hint so look forward to that and until next time folks immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now man
2: i think i think i'm fucking peeking right now wait i'm peeking through the curtain cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit Nothing is for certain but I feel it like a purpose Wait I'm peeking through the curtain Hardly feeling like a person But the vibes are perfect uh. I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain but I feel it like a purpose Wait My third eyes open and my chakras flowing All seven channels in my spirits floating Knowledge feeling deeper than the ocean It's the Eightfold Path and the Sacred Lotus uh. I'm peeking, flipping through Akashic Records my ego's decomposing like a leopard, I'm mega Casey going some levitation, so with zero hesitation as I jump into the spaceship, I'm weary from thinking like a earthling, while skyfish dip and dive above the earth circling, I'm spiraling, sacred geometry, studying my old selves like it's anthropology, honestly, feeling like life's a comedy, as big a game as a paper run economy, I've been playing safe, but safest for the weak or hard way. Tearing everything apart Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Cells out of service, can't reach me on the circuit Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose Wait, I'm beta testing old theta frequencies I lay the rest, the ego, and the frequent things That keep me seeing life inside a box Small minds kick rocks, Pandora, let's talk uh, I might need a suture for this rift in space I might stay and see how Lucifer's fruit tastes I'm hungry for knowledge and hungry for infinite And every time I'm peeking I can see it for an instant I'm peeking through the curtain at the crowd Sheeps in their seats and the wolves on the prowl Zeitgeist, spirit form, walking through the aisles Consumerism living in their vacant smiles Uh, Now I'm peeking through the curtain at the sky I ain't even gotta try, gaining wisdom on the fly I'm touching base with things I can't explain Gods without names on a different plane Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. I hardly feel it like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. wait.